Our Bible reading tonight is from 1 Samuel chapter 31, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armour-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armour-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armour-bearer saw that Saul was dead too, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armour-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armour and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armour in the temple of the Astreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Thanks, Nikki. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm Jai. Nice to see you all. Hello, Hi, hello. hello. Uh, well, we are at the end of 1 Samuel. Oh. Or maybe not, oh, maybe yay, who knows. Uh, but I, as we come to the end of 1 Samuel, I, um, I can't help but uh, realise that endings are a, a weird thing. So there are some endings that we feel really bad about or endings that we don't like. Like, for example, the end of school holidays. Aww, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it does, right? End of any holidays is not fun, right? Uh, the end of a concert, it's not fun. You just wish they do just one more song. The end of that one litre of ice cream that you've been eating during a movie and it's only halfway through. Maybe that's just me. Um, maybe, maybe it's the end of a movie or a TV uh, series that just hasn't kind of connected everything up and you're kind of left going, there needs to be more. Maybe it's the end of a delicious meal that you've been eating. But there are other endings that we actually are quite thankful for and that we do like. Like the end of training means that it's game day coming. End of training. You know, you train and then you play a game. Sometimes it's the end of travelling or a journey. 
because it means you have arrived at the destination that you're looking forward to. Maybe it's the end of a sermon. <laughs> you weren't meant to laugh at that one. Maybe, maybe it's at the end of one of those movies where they have the post credit scene just to give you a little glimmer of hope that there is more to come and to get you excited about what will happen in the next movie. Endings are weird. Some we like, some we don't. We have an ending here in 1 Samuel, which is both one that we like and one that we don't like. It's an ending that is full of tragedy, but also an ending that's full of hope and promise and expectation of what will come. And so as we finish our series in 1 Samuel and we meditate on God's word of the ending of 1 Samuel, I'm going to pray for us and we'll jump in. Let's do that. Dear gracious God, we pray that as uh, we reflect on uh, the ending of 1 Samuel and in particular of the life of Saul, Father, we pray that you would able to help us to see clearly the tragedy that is before us, but also the hopeful anticipation for the future. Father, we pray that as we meditate on these things that you will speak to us through your word and through your spirit so that we may seek to honour you and glorify you. Amen. So let's start off with the ending. It's the end. But we have, at the beginning of chapter 31, the end of a battle. But this battle, we need a little bit of context to because it doesn't just flare up here. This is a battle that actually started taking shape all the way back in chapter 28. Back in 28, we see that this battle begins. And just a little aside, if you want to read tonight, tomorrow, or sometime during the week, uh, 1 Samuel 31 again, can I encourage you to read chapter 31 and then flip over to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. It's a great companion to reading chapter 31 because it's almost the same story with a few little extra details. It's super helpful. Sorry, just a little side, throw that in there. But this battle starts all the way back at chapter 28. And we see that in verse, uh, verse 1 of 28, we see that the Philistines have gathered and they're ready to fight the Israelites. And Achish said to David, and just so you know, this is the future King David, okay, bear that in mind, that he's going to come and fight with him. Now, if you're not seeing the connection there, talking about the Philistine army and David being with the Philistine army, all right? crazy lots of stuff happened between 28 and chapter 31 let me tell you and a lot of stuff happened before then we'll get to that in a moment though then verses 3 and 4 we find that Samuel has now died so we actually see that there's another end Israel are mourning him and the Philistines are getting ready on the eve or during this mourning process and so we find Saul take an army of Israelites out to face the Philistines. And so this battle is about to take place between the Philistines and Israel. And David is almost pulled into it. He's almost dragged into it. But not kicking and screaming and not fighting for Israel. 
They're actually fighting for the Philistine army. And the reason for this is that before chapter 28, David and his men who had been hiding in amongst the Philistines had actually been living a bit of a lie and had actually become soldiers of this army and had actually done great things for this army. And so what we find on the eve of this battle that, that finishes in chapter 31 is that there are two things, one, going, one thing going on on each side of the battle line. The first is that we have David, who is now a soldier of the Philistine army. In fact, in chapter 29, verse 4, we actually see that the commanders of the army go, hang on, we know this David guy. He's the one that they said killed ten, uh, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of us. I don't think it's a great idea to have him on our team when we go up against his home nation, just in case he decides to jump ship midway through the battle. Makes sense. So David gets out of the battle and goes off. And there's a wonderful thing that happens through 29 and 30. I encourage you to have a read of it. She shows David's faithfulness to God. But on the other side of the line, on the, line the battle line, in chapter 28, verses 5 to 7, we see that Saul, when he hears that this army is coming, is actually afraid and terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but as we know, the Lord has abandoned Saul, just as Saul had abandoned God and his obedience towards him. And so here, as Saul calls out to God, he gets nothing, whether that be through dreams or through prophets or anything. And so he turns to a medium. And if you continue on, um, you'll actually see he uh, actually asked the medium to actually bring back from the dead Samuel and Samuel just to make it really short and really blunt Samuel goes what are you doing you're an idiot and for what you've done here's what's going to happen you're going to lose and your kids are going to die in battle you're an idiot and that's what happens battle gets lost and Saul's three sons die in this battle. And so what we find in chapter 31 in this battle is that not only is it the end of the battle, but it's also the end of Saul himself. When we zoom in on this passage, we see, as I said, that, that Saul's three sons die in battle. Even Jonathan, who has helped David escape, even pledged his allegiance, not to Saul, but to David. Even he perishes in this fight. And yet in verse 3, we see that, uh, that Saul is still alive. Even though he might be a bit wounded. And as Saul is hemmed in on both sides, as the Philistine army are, are encroaching and ready to take him, as Saul is unable to get away, as Saul is scared, he's freaking out about what the Philistines will do to him if they capture him. This is a little bit of a, a hark back to when uh, Saul actually took King Agar as a prisoner and used him as a trophy to parade through the, um, the Israelite towns 
to, to say how great and mighty he is because he has captured a foreign king. He's worried that that will happen to him and far worse. And so he turns to his armour bearer and says, you've got to do me in. You've got to kill me because if they get me, I can't deal with what they're going to do to me. It'll be embarrassing, it'll be painful, it'll be horrible, it will be horrendous. You need to kill me before they do. Saul doesn't see his life of great value as, his, as God's anointed king. But we actually see that his armour bearer does because he refuses this request. Just as David, we heard last week, refused to harm Saul because he's God's anointed king. Yeah, he's not living as God's king should. He's living in rebellion and rejection to God, but he's the one that God put as king over Israel. And as David said, no one should lay a hand on the one that God has anointed. And so the armour bearer refuses. But Saul... Well, he doesn't care so much about this idea of harming the, the one that the Lord has anointed. We find that he falls on his own sword. Now, in some cultures, falling on your sword is a very honourable thing. It's an honourable death. In this moment, it is the most dishonourable way for Saul to leave this earth. It is the most dishonourable way for Saul to bring his life to an end. Because what we find in the end of Saul, in his death, is that Saul dies the same way he lived. Ruled by fear and doing things his way and not God's way. There is nothing noble about his death. It's also important for us to note here at this point, even in Saul's final moments, even though this situation for him is completely and utterly hopeless, even in this moment, Saul does not cry out to God. He doesn't cry out to God and ask for help and for deliverance. He takes matters into his own hands. Instead of being humble and faithful, he is full of pride and disobedience. And the implications are huge. Because not only does Saul die and his army flee and many die as well, and his sons die, but there's a large area, a large region, where people flee from their homes. You know those, uh, those images we see when there's great bushfires and people are just literally just jumping in the car and leaving everything behind? They're getting out as quickly as they can. You remember, you've seen those? Yeah? Well, imagine no bushfire, but the same image. There's no bushfire coming, but the Philistine army is tearing up everything in its wake. And so everyone, every inhabitant of this area, just near where the battle is taking place, flee and leave their towns empty. The water still running. The kettle's still boiling. The telly's still on. They flee. And what ends up happening in this moment is that Israel is actually split in two because this region actually goes right through the middle of the Israelite nation. 
And so now the Philistines command this middle bit, cutting off all communication between the two. That's a huge moment. But just like for those of, uh, as Stu mentioned before, the Gen X uh, and older demographic, you'll remember good old Tim Shaw from Demtel. You remember that? I know you still want more. Free set of steak knives? No? Well, this is the more that we don't want to hear. Because at the end, there is still more. In verses 8 to 10, we see that Saul's biggest worry, his greatest fear actually comes true. Because as the Philistines go and finish their campaign of destruction, they find the bodies of Saul and his three sons. And they take these bodies as trophies in a most horrible and tragic way. They use them as a way to parade their might and power of their gods. We find that Saul's head is cut off just like Goliath's was, all the way back in chapter 15. And the bodies of Saul and his sons are hung on a wall in a village to show how mighty the Philistine army and gods are. And by doing so, actually rob Israel of the royal honour of burying their king in an honourable way. They're stacking up disgrace upon disgrace for Saul's house and for God's people. It gets even worse. Because we find that Saul's armour is actually put in the temple of their goddess. And as I said earlier, if you read 1 Chronicles chapter 10, which is a great little companion, verse 10 reads like this. They put his armour in the temple of their gods and hung his head in the temple of Dagon. So they are heaping up disgrace upon disgrace, not just on Saul and God's people, but on God himself. By doing this, they are declaring that the God of Israel has been defeated by the hands of the Philistine gods. See, Saul's failure and Saul's defeat have not only disastrous impact on God's people, but is also having disastrous impact on the reputation of God himself. He's actually making God a laughingstock. There's still more, but it gets better. Because there is grace at the end of chapter 31. Did you see it there? Did you hear it as it was being read? You might have just been totally overwhelmed by what was going on, which is fair enough. It's pretty tragic. The grace is this. That God did not allow Saul and his three sons' body to hang indefinitely in shame. God was gracious and provided closure, a fitting and a good end in the end. And we see that there is these people, this town of Jabesh. No, I've been doing that as I've been reading it. Sorry, Jabesh. Jabesh. Right? And we might go, well, who are these people? Where do they come from? Everyone else is, is fleeing and in terror, and yet this town 
decide to go on a rescue plan. They go on a rescue mission to go and get the body of Saul and his sons. What we actually find here is that even though this king, King Saul, lived and died so dishonorably, we see that this town is actually repaying a debt to Saul. That debt is actually a bookend to the life of Saul. Because all the way back in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, we find that uh, Saul's very first act as king is to rescue the people of Jabesh. To rescue them from the Ammonites. And when he did that, he actually brought all of Israel together and earned the loyalty and the devotion of this town and all the people who live in it. And just like the Ammonites gave seven days to find a deliverer, we find that this, the people of this town mourn for Saul and his sons for the same amount of time. They mourn for seven days of the loss of their saviour, of their redeemer, of their king. Now, what happens very soon in, uh, funnily enough, what comes after 1 Samuel is 2 Samuel. It's interesting how that happens. But in 2 Samuel, and can I just say, I'm really, I'm going to let this slip. We're going to do 2 Samuel next year, about halfway through the year. All right? Very very spoiler, all right? But the spoilers continue. All right? So if you don't want to hear any spoilers, put your fingers in your ears. Because when David becomes king, he actually learns of this rescue mission and what has happened. And when you read ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, we actually see uh, exactly this. That he, and when he hears of what they have done for Saul, he actually honours them and blesses them. David sees what this, this rescue mission has done and what it meant. How wonderful it is as an act of grace that he praises God for what they have done. And so it is here at the end of 1 Samuel where Saul and his children, his sons, are dead. Where Israel is in turmoil. Where God's name is profaned among the nations. As at this end we see that there's something that we don't like about how it finishes. The ending is not one that we like. But thankfully, there is part of it that we do like. Because even though this is the final chapter of 1 Samuel, it is not the final chapter of this story. The expectation at the end of 1 Samuel is that there is a king who is coming. That there is another anointed. That David will take the throne. And that he will rule as God wants a king to rule his people. He will be a king after the own, the heart of God. And he will trust God and follow him. With a few hiccups along the way. But there is hope. 
But there's not just hope for Israel in this as well. There is hope for us. Because in this ending, there is expectation of a future king who will be a perfect king, a king who will be a perfect saviour. There is the hope of the future where Jesus, God's own son, will come and redeem and save this world and be king in the kingdom of God for all eternity. And so as we come to the end of 1 Samuel, we find that it is an end that is also full of new beginnings. So even though it, we've gone through all this tragedy at the end, even the very death of Saul himself is very tragic, it's still not the most tragic thing of the story of Saul. The most tragic thing about Saul is not his death, but the way that he lived his life. Again, in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 at the end, verses 13 and 14, it says this, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance. And he did not inquire of the Lord. For the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. What an obituary that is. Saul died because he was unfaithful to God and disobedient. If he had remained faithful and obedient, he would have died in peace and prosperity, just as David does. But because he is disobedient and unfaithful, he dies in fear and in helplessness. But this Saul that we've been talking about the end of was actually once given a new beginning. When God anointed Saul through uh, Samuel, he was given a new beginning. God made him king. God even laid his spirit on Saul. He made Saul a great king. But what we find is that Saul rejected all this and lived a life of rebellion to God, just like every other king of every other nation, therefore giving Israel exactly what they'd asked for, a king like every other nation. Friends, one little warning. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty. Anyone seen Bruce Almighty? There's a great scene in that where Bruce is trying to answer all the prayer requests. And he gives up at one point and just says, yes to all. Do you know what happens when you answer the prayer requests of everybody who wants to win lotto? Everyone wins lotto. You know how much you get if everybody wins lotto? A couple of bucks. Not so great, is it? Friends, Israel got what they asked for. But the hope of the future is that they will get something far greater than what they'd asked for. They will get a king that will rule after God's own heart. Saul is given 
a new beginning, even though he turns away and lives a rebellious life. It is worthwhile noting at this point too that, friends, you and I are given the opportunity of a new beginning too. When the life of Jesus came to an end on the cross, it was so that we might have a new beginning. It was so that we might live anew. And so from that beginning, we are on a journey to our end. It is the one thing that both Generation X and every other generation have in common, what every race and people group have in common, is that one day we will all come to an end. We will all leave this life. We are all on a journey to that end. The question is, how do we live that journey on the way? See, if we are unlike Saul and remain obedient and faithful to Jesus, when our end comes here on earth, we, like our King Jesus, will rise to new life and we will live forever in his kingdom for all eternity. We will not fear what will come, but we will rejoice and look forward to that day. And we will live each day in expectation of that, not in fear of it. We'll live each day knowing that one day we will stand before God, whether willingly or unwillingly, where some will hear the words, depart from me, I don't know you. Just as Saul didn't live a life in knowledge of God. But the hope for those who have a new beginning, who have a citizenship in the kingdom of God for all eternity, under the rule and reign of King Jesus forever, is that when we leave this earth, this life, and go into the next, we look forward to the day where we hear the most joyous words we will ever, ever hear. Welcome home, good and faithful servant. Enter into rest. Friend Saul didn't live with that mindset. The lesson for us at the end of Saul's life is to not live as Saul lived, but to live knowing that one day we will stand before God, whether we want to admit it or not. And that while we live this life, while we live on this journey, how we live now in faithfulness and obedience towards God matters. Because how well you die is determined by how well you live. Now some of us here are so young to even think about that day that we will die in old age is so far away. What's the point? And some of us might begin to be closer. And some of us might just live dangerously enough so it could be closer every day. Here's the thing. We live in a society where we want to deny death and not talk about it. We never want to talk about dying. We want to live forever. We want to think that we'll live forever. It's a depressing topic. 
I'm sure you're here hearing about death going, oh, come on, get to something good. We don't like talking about it because it hurts and it's awkward and it makes us feel uneasy and uncomfortable. The problem is by doing this and not talking about death, we actually don't think about how we live. Friends, that is the greatest thing we can ever talk about. See, when we talk about how we will die well, we talk about then how we live well to that point. Because to live well is to trust in Jesus. As John 10.10 says that Jesus came so that we would have life and have it to the full. So that when our life ends, we will die well. Not die in fear and in helplessness, but full of confidence and trust in Jesus. And so here is the challenge for us tonight. Live well. Live well. So that you might die well. Live well. And live well together. It's so much easier to live well when we do it together in community because we can cheer each other on. We can support each other. See, Saul didn't have that at the end, did he? He was alone. Friends, let us live well so that we might do that together. Let's live our lives well together so that we may let our vision and our hearts be set on God and God alone. Let our wisdom and our God be God. Let our riches and our treasure be God, now and forever. And let our singing be to the high King of heaven, who has won the victory for us. May we together live well so that we might reach heaven's joy and see our Lord and God, who is ruler of all. Let me pray. Dear gracious God, we ask that you would strengthen us and equip us, that you would remind us, that you would encourage us and enable us to spur each other on to live well, knowing that one day we will leave this earth father we pray that as we seek to live well that we would have our hearts and our minds set on that day when we see you face to face and father as we seek to live well on this life's journey father we ask that you would continue to encourage us and spur us on to grab hold of anybody and everybody to take with us so that they too will experience the, the anticipation of great joy that will come at the end of this life as we await to stand before you and hear the words of our loving Father welcoming us home forever and ever. Amen.